Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. Just a moment, we're going to stand and read this text together. I know you just sat down, but I'm going to have you... Stand with me and read it together, First uh, Peter chapter 5. Once everyone turns there or clicks there, either way, let's stand up and let's read this scripture. I'll read it out loud as we all follow along. First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1, our text will go through verse 7. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Again, Father, we believe these ancient words are your words. We have confidence that these were breathed out by, by the Holy Spirit through men of God. And now we have the word of God in front of us. And so I pray today that our hearts will be open to what you have to say our hearts will submit to your word and in joy and obedience, we will follow you by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I gotta wait for this to come up on the screen here. When you were in school, you probably learned about atoms, all matter is made up of atoms. So let me just find out here quick what's going on. Okay, guys, do we need some help? Sometimes in churches you have technical difficulties. I'll plug it back in. If not, you're just going to have to imagine what an atom looks like. Remember in your textbook what those little atoms looked like? You've never seen them with your naked eye, right? Because you can't see them. Well, that's okay. You can imagine what I have on my screen up here. And uh, atoms are important. It's okay. We'll just don't worry about it. It's fun. Yeah. Um, I'll just try it one more time. How about that? If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. There we go. Well, that happens sometimes. Let's see here. Where were we at? Adams. There we go. So I'm not talking about the person, right? I'm not talking about the guy who was the first one on earth, right? I'm talking about atoms that are a part of uh, science. Atoms are an important part of life. And 
These little guys are pretty happy. They, uh, they make up all matter. Everything we see is made up of atoms. Atoms are mostly peaceful part of, uh, particles that allow us to enjoy life. But there was a discovery made in the 20th century called fission. Now, how many of us know what that is in here? You guys know what that is? Okay, some of you kids out there are learning that in school, maybe. And fission uses uranium, sometimes uranium, sometimes plutonium, but to split atoms. And when you split an atom, it no longer is a happy little particle, right? A lot of really bad things can happen. It can create the possibility of a devastating reaction called a nuclear bomb. You can't see it on the screen, but just imagine a nuclear bomb up there, okay? And when an an atom is split, it actually only takes one small little neutron to split that atom. And that little neutron can affect that atom so much that it can split it and then cause a chain reaction. And a tremendous amount of energy is released because of that. And you can obliterate cities and cause effects for generations. Because of that. A church like Lighthouse, I view it somewhat of like a little atom, right? There's millions of churches in our world and throughout the centuries. And they make up the the kingdom of God. God uses churches like ours to preach the gospel, to declare the word of God. However, churches can easily, little churches like ours, we can easily split and explode and, and, and like those little neutrons can come in an atom, a little neutron can come in and cause it to split and cause a lot of problems. Pride can come into a church like this. And it can cause it to split and to fraction out and then to explode and spiritually explode. Pride in a church can create spiritual fission that releases a tremendous amount of deception and sin. And destroys pastors congregants and churches and marriages and relationships and ultimately dishonors God. Pride can destroy the church. It only takes a little bit of pride to destroy churches like ours. The apostle Peter, he knew how destructive pride could be because he had pride, didn't he? He lied three times that he knew the Lord Jesus and pride blew up his life. And God had mercy upon him. Praise God for the mercy that Jesus had on him and restored him. But Peter had a unique perspective that he wanted to pass on to the elders and to the church members of of the destruction of pride, but also of the blessing of humility. And so that's what we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. First, he addresses the elders And encourages them to shepherd God's church with humility. And then if you look in verse 5, he transitions to instruct the church to follow the elders and to serve one another in humility. The last three weeks we have been in our series on 1 Peter 5 on humility in the church. And we learned that those who fulfill their God-appointed role with the attitude of humility will be exalted in future glory. So we spent a lot of time on elders. So let's talk about what does that look like for members, for church members. What's the role of a church member? Now, when I say the word church member, I say that, and you might look in here and say, I don't see the word church member, Pastor Ben. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, 
I say church members because I believe the Bible teaches that each believer must covenant with a church, a local church, in order to have some type of spiritual oversight of you. You have to put yourself under a church and under the leadership of that church. You have to be committed to the people of that church. And so we call that church membership. It's it's some type of covenanting our, our, our membership that you have to be a part of. I got an announcement for you here. In the back, we have a guy named Adam. Again, different from the Adam we were talking about earlier. Adam, would you stand up for us? Is is he back there? Okay, he's hiding behind the screen there. Okay, there's Adam. Oh, no, you got to stand up more than that, Adam. We got to be able to see you. Okay, there's Adam. Adam uh, met with the elders last week and went through the membership class last semester. And Adam is now a member of the church. And so praise God for that. And so what does that mean? What does that mean to be a member of the church? And so I think we didn't do this this week, but hopefully maybe next week we can put a little blurb in the bulletin about him. You can know, get to know him more. But he, we already put him in the sound booth up there serving. So that's great. And uh, he's in the box seat up there. So what does it mean to be a church member? What does it mean to have to fulfill your role as a church Member. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So first of all, what is our role as church members? Well, I think this, te- this text teaches that we are to follow the elders and to serve one another. Look at verse 5. So our first point is, it's not on the screen, so I'll just say it, make sure I say it again. Our first point is, our role is to follow the elders and serve one another. So you might need to write that down just because you're not going to remember it. If it's not uh, on the screen, you've got to probably write it down to remember Verse 5 says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, as you look at this verse, the first part of this verse, the question is, who are the younger and who are the elders? So let's first answer the question, who are the elders? Remember when we studied the word elders, we said it can mean two things. It can mean uh, uh, men who are older in age. And we said also it can mean sometimes in some context, a group of spiritually mature men. Like maybe the Sanhedrin or the elders of a city or the elders of a church. So the question is here, what is it talking about? Is it, is it a group of mature men? Or I should say, is it a group of mature men in the church who are leading as pastors? Or is it people who are older in age? And if you have a Bible that has maybe a little commentary notes, there's actually some differences in opinions out there. I actually am very confident that I believe it's speaking of what we call pastors or elders in the church. There's two reasons for that. First of all, the context points to that. Look at verse 1. He says, he addresses the elders, the pastors. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you. So here are elders in a local church. Among you means a local assembly. And again, it was their job, and look at verse 2, to shepherd the church. So these elders are to shepherd the church of God that is among you with oversight. So I, I, th- I think what you see here is you see him speaking to the elders and then he transitions and now speaks to the church. And therefore, I think that's one reason I think it can refer to the elders of the church. So the second reason is I think you can see the beginning of verse five. You can see this transitional word. You can see in verse five, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So the likewise connects verse five to the previous verses one through four. You know, it's kind of like when, Sometimes we're driving down the road, and if you're a parent, a grandparent, you've done this, and your car is full of kids in the back, and there may be a, a certain group of kids, maybe the boys in the back of the car who are being rowdy, you know, and so you look in the back 
of the mirror, you know, you know that little look you can give back there that's like lasers, it goes back there and it hits them. Okay, and if not, then you maybe throw something. No, just kidding, you don't do that. Anyways, but you know, you're driving down the road and, and you, you say, boys, come on, be quiet back there. And then the girls, you know, they kind of wag their heads like this. And you say, likewise, you girls. You probably don't say the word likewise, but you say, you too, girls. But that's kind of the idea here. It's kind of the idea that likewise means you're addressing a new group, but you, based upon some of the similar applications that you had before. In fact, you see this actually in 1 Peter chapter 2. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Peter, we actually studied this this past summer, and Peter here is addressing the church in regard to the different authorities God puts over the church, or I should say over uh, individuals, not over the church, over individuals. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So remember this past summer we studied and we said that there are basically four groups of authorities, four categories of authorities that God places over our lives. And actually, it's interesting if you see 1 Peter 2, 13, it says, be subject. That's actually the same Greek words you find over in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, that the younger are to be subject to the elders. So here's, 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 a, here's a, a group, a category, uh, categories of authorities over our lives. And so look in verse 13, you can see this first category is is the king who's supreme, the emperor, verse 14, governors. And so here we see government. Government is given by God, and it's an authority that's given by God to punish evildoers and protect those who are law-abiding. God actually has guidelines, if you could say that, for the, the government. Government's really big into giving guidelines these days, isn't it? Well, God has guidelines for the government, actually. And the government has jurisdiction in a certain area to protect those who are law-abiding, to punish those who are not law-abiding. And so it's, God's, it's a God-given role for the government. Now, when the government steps outside its jurisdiction into other groups like the church or to the home, and they actually intervene in that and try to take over the role of the parents or try to take over the role of the church, then, then we speak up as a church and say, that's not right. Like, that's not right. You have your area of jurisdiction. God has called you to. He's given that to you. And you have a right to rule within that. And you have a right to have us submit to that. I want to speak about this because I think Again, I mentioned last week this pastor, Pastor James Coates, who's a pastor in Canada at Grace Life Church. And this is one of the reasons right here that I support this pastor. I'm praying. I pray, every day I've been praying for this guy. I can't imagine. He, he got put into a maximum security prison. He's in solitary confinement right now because he did what we're doing right here. He gathered with the church and he decided to preach even though they said they were going to put him in jail. And so what's, and what he's basically saying in that situation, if you listen to his sermons and read some of the things he's wrote, he's saying, listen, we, we're going to obey God in regard to worship, and we're not going to obey the government in regard to how they tell us we're supposed to worship. So the government, they have authority over us in regard to certain things within the, in their jurisdiction given by God, but they can't tell us what to believe they can't tell us how to worship. That's actually God is the authority that oversees the church and tells us what that's to look like. And so you, that's the first area of authority. You see government. And you can see in verse 18, the second area of authority is employment. Then look down in chapter 3, verse 1, and you can see the, the, the third category of authority is that of the home. This is the point I wanted to bring up because you look at verse 1. He says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. And look down in verse uh, uh, 7 of chapter 3. 
3.7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. So that word likewise connects the home back to chapter 2, verse 13. In other words, it connects the, this to the, this group, this order of authority that God has put over our lives. And then what's interesting, you see in the last chapter, chapter 5, we see the fourth category of authority God has put in our life, and that is the church. That is the church. So if you look back in 1 Peter chapter 5, look down in verse 5, he says, likewise, and again, this likewise then I think is connecting us to these first four verses. So I, I, I'm, again, very confident this is speaking of the elders of the church. And then who are the younger that are here? First, verse 5 says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. The younger could just be the, the younger members of the church. It could just be that we have, you know, some members of the church and they're the younger ones in the church. Or it could be speaking of people who are younger in maturity, spiritual maturity. Now, when I say those who are younger, speaking of younger in age, how many of you would consider yourself younger? Okay. It kind of depends on where you're at in life, right? I remember out some of these like teens or 20 somethings, you know, and they look at me and they think I'm an old person. Then around some of you other people who are not the same age as me. <laughs> and you think I'm a really young person. It, it's, it's, so what is, what is the definition of younger? I don't really know, but I guess it uh, depends on what age you are and how you gauge it yourself. I still feel young. And in fact, Norm tells me all the time, he feels like he's still, what are you, in your 30s? 11. Yeah, 11. <laughs> well, feel and act are two different things right now. So is this referring to people who are young in age, are young in maturity? And, uh, well, you're going to have to turn your Bible because I can't put it up on the screen. So go to 1 Peter chapter 3. You're going to be flipping a, a couple places today. Usually I like to put it up on the screen so you can see it and we can just move on to the next thing. But uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, here it speaks about elders and it warns against putting spiritually immature elders in a position of authority, or I should say a, a spiritual immature person in a position of authority as an elder. So look at First Timothy chapter 3. He says there that the elders, a person that's going to be an elder must not be a recent convert. If you look at that, those two words, recent convert, it's one word in the Greek, and literally it means this, a new convert. That, that word starts off with neos, or new convert. And so now, flip back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Sorry, I'm going to have you flip around a little bit. Maybe keep your hand back in uh, 1, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Yeah, 1 Timothy. I'm sorry. Whoa, sorry. It's, I'm really confused right now because I'm, I'm depending a lot on my screen up here, and it's not up there. So, um, so keep your hand in 1 Peter 3. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. And I want you to notice the word there that says younger, and that again is a compound word of new, nuos, uh, new person, new man. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the word younger speaks of someone who is newer. And again, it could be newer to life, like you're younger in life, or it could be newer to the faith. But either way, no matter what it means, whether it's younger in life, younger in the faith, he, he he's saying here that we should, uh, that those who are younger should submit to the elders. Now, why does he single out the younger people here? Those who are younger in the faith or those who are younger in maturity. Why does he do that? I mean, some of you that think you're younger, you might be a little offended by that. 
Well, why does he do that? Well, I think we should th- go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and think about what he's saying there in regard to warning against putting a younger person, a person who's younger in maturity, into a position of leadership. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he says, he must, an elder, must not be a recent convert, a new convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So, so younger converts can be tempted to come into a position of leadership and then in that position of leadership can be tempted to have pride, be puffed up, and then fall into the temptations of Satan. Think about someone who is a younger believer. Tend, they tend to be people who are very energetic, on fire for God. I mean, the, 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 the forgiveness of God is fresh in their heart. The grace of God is fresh in their heart. And so you, you, usually those type of people are people that we go, wow, that person's a rebuke to me, right? Because this person's on fire for Jesus Christ. And so we usually look at that person and we go, wow. And so what can happen sometimes you say, well, that person is such a, a person on fire for Christ and we should put them in a position of leadership. Maybe they should be an elder in the church. He says, no, no, don't do that. It's a warning against doing that because that person can actually be easily puffed up in pride and fall, therefore, under the temptation of that pride. One of the key aspects of spiritual maturity is learning in the school of humility. A person that is spiritually mature is a person who is living a life of humility and has learned the path, the good path of humility. The path of humility goes down, recognizing that down is the way that the Lord leads you up. Spiritual maturity takes place when you humble yourself before God and before others. And the lower you go in humility and dependence on God, the more grace God gives you. The lower you go in humility to sacrificially serve other people, the more God grows you to be like Christ. And those who learn the life of humility are, tend to be the people, the men, that the church says, listen, you are this type of person, then we want to put you into this place of Leadership, And that takes time. That takes time. So I think what you see here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, is Peter is singling out the younger because they are more tempted to be puffed up in pride and you could say rebel or to, to shed off the, the constraints of the heart and to, to follow their own desires. I think about this summer, you know, we watched on TV, on the news, you'd see the riots that were taking place around the country. Or if you lived in the 1960s, you probably watched uh, the TV back then and saw some of the riots, you know. And when you see the people that are on the screen up there, they tend to be younger, don't they? I mean, there's not too many nursing homes that are clearing out to go riot, are there? It, it, it tends to be those who are spiritually immature. And you might say, well, I saw some old people on there. Well, yeah, there might have been some older people. But in the end, they, they probably even think in a very spiritually immature way or really just immature in life, or maybe they have another agenda, and uh, we just don't know what that is because we don't know them. But the point is here, he's, he's commanding the spiritually young here to be, to be subject to the elders of the church. And again, it's not just for the, the young of the church, it's for all of us. All of us are to put ourselves under the leadership of the elders. But again, I think the younger are more tempted to go along that path. Those who are younger and really all of us are tempted with the prideful way of thinking that exalts my opinion above other people's opinions. And we have a very high opinion of our opinion, don't we? All of us have that. 
We think of our own opinion, and we have a very high opinion of our opinion. There's a, a friend that I have that lives in Washington. He's in a pretty high position and authority in Washington. He is a leader, an elder at a pretty significant church. I'm not going to say his name to save his reputation, okay? But um, I went to college with him, and this is actually a funny story, so it's not bad about him. But when we were freshmen in, high, in college, it was in the 90s. And so, you know, computers, those 3D6s, six, 486s, remember those old computers? Some of you don't know. But anyways, well, our college had just figured out networking. That was a pretty cool thing. You could network all the computers. But they hadn't figured out security yet. So this guy, though, he figured out, though, he can email then anyone he wanted to in the school. And he can email the entire school. That's professors. That's students. So he decided to send out an all-school email to everyone. And he gave his opinion on marriage and women. And it was very, very immature. And I know if he saw it today, he'd be very, very embarrassed. And it's kind of the point. We all kind of have stories about other people or maybe even ourselves at a younger age of things you wish you wouldn't have done or things you wouldn't have said, right? That, that's immaturity. That's, that's, that's called growing up, right? And and uh, if you're that age, don't use that as an excuse. But, but the point is, the point is, is that we recognize that younger people and all of us can be tempted to have this high opinion of our own opinion. We can be tempted to think freedom comes when we throw off the shackles of what's already there, when, when we rebel, when we want change, and when we have pride. But when we follow Christ, we recognize that freedom actually comes in our humility, and when we humble ourselves under the almighty hand of God, when we humble ourselves amongst those around us, that, that God actually gives us grace and he gives us freedom. So those, those who are spiritually mature, they actually recognize the blessing of authority. I think about a, a, a boy that uh, goes to his grandfather's house. And so he goes to his grandfather's house. There's a backyard, nice big backyard. And there's a, a, a huge wall that encircles the backyard of this grandfather's house. And so his grandfather comes out and he says to him, he says, listen, I don't want you climbing the wall and definitely don't go to the other side because there's some dangerous animals on the other side. Our, our, my neighbor has some dogs over there. I just don't want you doing that. And so, of course, what does the young boy do? He climbs the wall and goes to the other side because he wants to see what's on the other side. And he learns the hard way that that wall was there for his protection. And see, that's what God puts in our life. He puts authorities. Authorities are like a wall in our life that are there to protect us, to, to bless us. So the spiritually mature, they don't, they don't look at that word, be subject, and they don't say, oh, that's a terrible thing. They look at it and say, you know what? There's, a, there's blessing. There can be blessing in that. And the truth is, all of us, and I say myself included, we can be tempted to fall into this immature way of thinking, this heart of rebellion toward authority to say, I want to sh shed off the authorities in my life, and I want to live independent of authorities. Well, the problem is you can't do that and also live in submission to God. If you throw off the authorities in your life that God gives them authorities, you're also throwing off God in your life because God has put those authorities in your life. So what is the command here? In verse 5, he says, we are to be subject to the elders. The word subject, again, we learned about this a couple of times in 1 Peter. It's a military term to place yourself under an order of authority, which means we are following those who are leading us. Now, I confess, this is a very awkward sermon to preach in a context like this, because I'm speaking in some sense of myself and five other men, four other men who are out here. 
it's a little awkward because I was going to pop some things on the screen. <laughs> I'm not doing that. So I'm trying to work through some of this. But it's a little awkward for me, frankly, because this is not typically what, if you're a topical preacher, you're not going, what am I going to preach on today? Ah, the authority of the elders. Let's do that, right? You only preach on this in a church as a pastor if you're an expository preacher, okay? And, um, but I want you to remember something, though, as I'm preaching through this, that this instruction to be subject to the elders is, includes, I am an elder, yes, but includes me as well. I'm a member of the church. Our elders, they're members of the church, and I'm a member of the elder board, if you want to say it that way. I, and each of the elders, we are men under authority. Our church polity is a plurality of elders, which means each elder functions under the authority of those elders, of that group. So when I speak of being subject to the elders, I'm not saying that you should be subject just to me. I'm actually saying that I, Ben Ice, I have to be subject to my elders that I have. Like, I have a lot of ideas that run through my head every day. And it kind of overwhelms people. It sometimes overwhelms my wife, okay? And it sometimes can overwhelm the elders. I mean, sometimes in our elders' meetings, well, pretty much every time, the last couple words are, oh, yeah, and one more thing, okay? That usually comes from me. And, uh, and so our elders' meetings usually go late. I mean, sometimes really late. Okay, most of the time really late. But, but I am not, as a, as a pastor here, I am not a, a Western gunslinger who can do whatever I want to do, right? Just because I have an idea to say, oh, I think we should do this. It's not like I just don't go do, I actually am a man under the authority. And so as I give this instruction, I want you to know I'm doing this and I'm preaching to myself as well. Secondly, I'm doing this because I want to be faithful to God's word, even if it's not the most popular thing to preach. And third, I think it's the best thing for us. It's the best thing for us. It's the best thing for me to be under the authority of my elders. It's the best thing for us as a church to be under the authority of our elders. It's actually God's blessing to us. So God has appointed authorities over us. And whenever I talk about this kind of stuff, I always want to kind of also go to the other side of it and recognize that there are authorities that are polluted by pride and wickedness and laziness. Some authorities function like broken down walls, right? They're, they have no protections. There's, there's fathers in the home. There's, there's elders in the church. There's governments. And they just let anyone do what they want to do, right? And they, they don't have those walls of protection. That's really hurtful for those people. There are some authorities that are like walls that fall on people, right? Instead of protecting them, it actually hurts them. And so if there's an authority in your life that is doing something like that to you, that's evil, that's illegal, let me encourage you to go get help um, and to get someone to help you through that. Elders of a church, the elders of a church should be spiritual authorities who bless you with their leadership. We've had some visitors in the past couple of weeks come to our house um, for dinner to get to know them and meet them. That's been a blessing. And many times, I should say probably almost all the time, the question comes up, You know, what are the elders like of the church? Who are the elders and what are they like? And I am so glad I can with full confidence and honesty say to all those visitors into this church that our elders lead with humility. Doesn't mean they're always right, uh, righteous, I should say. Sometimes they do things that are wrong, but they then therefore correct that and they ask forgiveness for that. They lead in unity, not uniformity, but in unity. 
and in submission to the word of God. And our elders, from my perspective, our elders at our church are a huge blessing to us. Frankly, church, there are many churches who the elders are not obeying Christ in this way and do not have unity. And there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of arrogance. There's a lot of competition that's taking place. And so I just am over the top thankful that God has blessed me as a pastor to be under the authority of elders like that. And so when we think about this, this right here, what does this mean for us? I don't want to go through the responsibility of elders like I did the last two weeks and talk about that. But I do think we should think through what this means for us as a church. Timothy 2.15 says this, Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Paul wrote that to a pastor. And he's saying, listen, you have the authority to exhort and rebuke and not let anyone disregard you as an elder. But what's the basis for that? He says, declare these things. What are these things? Whatever Timothy thinks of or Titus thinks of? No, it's the things of the word of God. He's saying, based upon the authority of what I'm writing, which Paul was writing the scripture, he's writing the word of God. He says, declare these things, declare the word of God and call people. And so what does this mean? I think this means that we need to have hearts as a church that, that, that is humble to listen to God's word. Hebrews 13, 17, or, or sorry, Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And who are those leaders? Those are the elders. And he says in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. The elders are the spiritual authorities in our lives who are to watch for our souls. The elders are to help me as a pastor and other, each other. They're going to watch out for each other's souls and we're to watch out for the souls of our congregation of God's people. There is no such thing, there is no such thing as spiritual life thriving without a local church, without elders who are, who are shepherding God's people with the word of God and the spirit of God and without the people of God. Do you believe that? You can't have spiritual life that's thriving for Christ if you're isolated somewhere. You need the oversight of shepherds. You need the word of God. In fact, listen to this. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is no such thing as a person spiritually thriving in isolation. If you don't believe it, look that verse up. It says in there that you need the church daily, weekly. You need people in your life to exhort you because you are easily deceived by sin. And the more that you're isolated, the more you can be deceived. And the more you're deceived, the more you will fall away from the Lord. So all of us need spiritual accountability. All of us need spiritual encouragement. All of us need the church. And so how are we responding to the authority that God has placed in our life? So the first point is our role is to follow the elders and serve each other. The second point, our attitude is to do that in humility. Look at verse 5. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And so Peter transitions from speaking to those who maybe are more immature in the church to then the whole church. He says, verse 5, all of you, that's speaking to the whole church. And notice the imperative he gives the church. 
He says to be clothed. Put some clothes on. It's glad to see everyone dressed up pretty well for church here today. But what are the clothes he's talking about here? Of course, he's using a metaphor here. And he's saying that this is the clothes of being a servant. Literally, this means to put on the apron of a servant. Back at this time in the first century, if you were a slave in someone's house, then you would, would tie something around your waist. And that would show that you were a servant in the house. And frankly, no person wanted to put that on because no per- person wants to be a slave, right? No person wants to be this owned by someone else and serve someone else in that way as, a, as an occupation, I should say it that way. And so what he's saying here, he says, listen, take that symbol of authority and not the literal symbol of authority, but th- take that, that idea of clothing yourself as a servant and serve one another. Next week, we're going to have name tags we're going to put on ourselves. It's going to have your name on there. That way you can kind of know everyone's name. We try to do that the first Sunday of every month. This is kind of like what he's saying. He's saying, put the name tag of servant. Like, when you, if you were to put that on there, like, I'm here to serve everyone. That would be a pretty humbling thing, wouldn't it? Who wants to put that name tag on? Who wants to do that? Well, Christians do. Well, why is that? Because that's what our Savior, Jesus Christ, did. In fact, go to Philippians chapter 2. This is the wonderful passage where it speaks of Christ's humility. In Philippians chapter 2, we find actually the same Greek word for humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. We find that same Greek word back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So notice that, but in humility... That word humility there is the typical word for humility, but it's also combined with the mind. And literally, think in a way that's humble. In other words, this is how you should view life. You should view life with this attitude of humility. You should, should view life thinking in a way that, is, that is, is a proper way to think of yourself before God and before other people. And if you think in that way, therefore, you'll live a different way. I think what's interesting you find here, he says, this is how Jesus thought, and therefore, this is what Jesus did. Look at verse 5. He says, having this mind, this way of thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then let's, let's learn of the humility of Christ. He thought in a certain way, therefore, he did and acted in a certain way. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus deserved, when he was on this earth, he deserved to have every person he met bow down before him and worship him. Every man and woman and child. He is God. And though he took on flesh, he still remained God. And he still deserved every person to fall down before him and to adore him. But what's interesting about Jesus is that very few people did that, didn't they? In fact, Jesus, practically every day of his life, he had people that defied him, especially in his ministry. Even his disciples, they exalted their own opinions and their own view of themselves above Jesus. And literally, as Jesus was walking around, he could see the hearts of people. And just think about that. Think about if we could see every person's heart in here. Jesus could see every person's heart. 
Think about the people that he met, the tax collector. As he looked at the tax collector, he could see into his heart. Here's a man who loved his money. He loved himself and didn't care about God. And he'd go to the religious man who thought he was better than everyone else and actually didn't need God as well. And he'd go to the politician who was drunk on power and did everything so he could lift himself up and have more power and have more authority over other people. He met husbands who were, who were, um, who were trapped by their own lust and lived for their own desires. And the point is, on and on, as he met people, he, he saw people who had a battle in their heart for the, or I should say they had a heart that was darkened by pride and they were self-worshippers. And really the truth is at that moment, he had every right at that moment to snap his fingers, to speak a word and to bring judgment upon that person. But he didn't do it. And he, he had every right to call that person, bow before me, worship me now. I'm the creator. I'm God. But he didn't do it. And the question we have to ask is why? Why didn't he do it? He had the right to do that. He had the right for immediate justice. He had the right to be worshipped. Well, verse 7 tells us why. Look at verse 7. He says, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He gave up those rights that he had by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to the point of extreme physical and spiritual pain to rescue us from our pride-filled, sin-ridden hearts. And he did it to bring glory to his Father. For those who humble themselves in faith, for those who humble themselves under the almighty hand of God, the Bible says when we trust in Jesus Christ, he changes us, he gives us new life, and he changes our thinking. And no longer is our thinking about how we can live for ourselves and how we can fulfill our own pleasures, but now how can we live for Christ? How can we serve his church? And the picture of verse 5 here is this. I think that it's that you are taking off the old garments of living for yourself, of, of following your own way, and you're saying, I'm going to put on the garments of Christ. I'm going to put on the garments of humility, the humility of Christ. Now, if you were, if you were a man in here and you're a young boy, or maybe you're a young boy here, and uh, you might have had your mom laying out clothes for you growing up. Anyone have that? Did your mom lay out clothes? Especially if you're one of those boys who like to wear the same jeans every day, same shirt, sometimes the same, you know, other stuff too, socks and underclothing. Any boys like that in here? No, don't, don't confess that. But sometimes your mom will come in and say, okay, I'm going to put this out for Sunday for you or for school for you or even just to play outside. Now, if you're an average American boy, you think, what's the point? It's going to get dirty anyways, right? Why don't I just wear what I'm comfortable with? I mean, why do you wear that? That's what I'm comfortable with. Some men still think that way. That's unfortunate. But anyways, so their wives put out clothes for them. <laughs> so it just continues on, I guess. But you wear, a boy might wear something like that because it feels good, right? It feels comfortable. It's what you, but obviously it starts smelling after a while and it's not a good thing. And I think what you see here, kind of like that, if you take that picture, the picture of that, that's kind of the picture of a person who is comfortable with their own prideful attire of, of a sinful heart. We really like the garments of our pride, don't we? We're comfortable with a heart of pride. We're comfortable with 
with doing what we want to do, with living for ourselves, with trusting our own, our own ideas, our own understanding, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. The clothes of pride feel good in us because pride views me as the most important person. Pride views me as a person who should be recognized, one who should be valued above everyone else. Most people in this world, I should say all people without Christ in this world, wear the clothes of pride on their heart every day. The clothes of pride are stained with the sins of gossip. Gossip gossip seeks to group, group people around me so I can look better than everyone else. The clothes of pride have on the patches have on it patches of lies and deception because you got to make sure you look good and people don't see who you really are. So you lie. The clothes of pride have the deep pockets of bitterness that holds on and sticks down deep the, the wrongs that someone has, has done against me. It has the deep pockets of unforgiveness. The clothes of pride have the tight stitching of stubbornness, of, of pride that does not admit, want to admit that you're wrong. You want to lower yourself to confess that you have sinned. The clothes of pride have the secret stains of lust, addiction, hidden sin that doesn't want to be exposed to God or to anyone else because it will embarrass you. And those are the clothes of pride that every person is born into the world with, frankly, but also every person in in one level or another actually enjoys that and is most comfortable with that because it's all about you. But look down in verse 5. What does God say about those prideful clothes, that prideful heart? He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the person. God opposes the church. He opposes the country, the people who live for self-exaltation. And why is it? Why would God oppose hearts of pride like that? Well, it's because he's the only one who deserves to be exalted. He's the only one who deserves the glory. And the essence of sin really is this prideful heart that says that I am my own God. I will live for myself and I will live for my own pleasure and by my own desires. And remember, Jesus, when he came and humbled himself, he came and died on the cross for those sins. Or 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus came and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, Jesus Christ came to this world to save you from yourself. Jesus humbled himself to save you from your pride. So therefore, how can you live any longer therein? 1 Peter 5 says, God opposes the proud. So my friend, if your heart, if your heart is filled with pride, God is opposed to you right now. If your marriage is filled with pride, God is opposed to your marriage. You say, I don't feel God in my marriage. I don't feel God in my life. Well, if you have a heart of pride, no wonder. God is opposed to you. But that is not God's desire. Christ, he came to free you from that. He came to die for your pride-filled heart. And he wants to give you grace. So look down in verse 5. He says at the very end, 
God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. Isn't that what we need? Grace? Right? Isn't that what you really need? And then what you want? You want God's kindness in your life. You want his work in your life. Grace is God's work in our life to give us something good that we don't deserve. It's God's unmerited favor for us. Grace is God's action of love to those who are unlovely. Our country needs a lot of grace, doesn't it? Our church needs a lot of grace. Your marriages need a lot of grace. Children, you need a lot of grace in regard to your siblings, right? Your home needs a lot of grace. Our businesses need a lot of grace. I need a lot of grace. You need a lot of grace. You need God's grace that makes for peace between you and God. You need God's grace that gives forgiveness and cleansing. You need grace that will teach you, that will make you like Christ. You need grace that will give you joy and sweet fellowship with God, with one another. You need grace that's going to restore marriages. You need grace that's going to make marriages sweet and make your relationships wonderful and unite. Grace that will unite the church. We all need grace. Do we agree on that? We all need grace. We all want this grace. At least we should want this grace from God. So how do we get it? What does he say in verse 5? How do you get God's grace? Go ahead and look at it. What does it say in verse 5? God gives grace to the what? To the religious. So what it says? You come to church every Sunday and you're going to get a lot of grace from God. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you get grace. What if you're a good person? If I'm a good person, I'll get grace from God, right? Or I'm an American. <laughs> you know, I'm an American that votes for this kind of party. Certainly, I get grace. No. What does he say in there? How does a person get grace? He, God gives grace to the humble. And that is the one thing we don't want. That is the one thing that the world tells us to avoid. Our flesh screams out, don't do it. Don't humble yourself. But Christ calls out and he says, come. Come to me. I'm lowly. I was humble. And now I call you to humble yourself. And for those without Christ, if I'm speaking to someone this morning and you're without Christ, humility for you means that you turn from your sin. And you say, no longer do I want to live my life for that. You turn from your own idea of how you get to God, your own religious way. And you say, Jesus Christ, you're the way. You're the truth. You're the life. I trust you as my Savior, and I submit to you as my Lord. That's what humility looks like for a person who wants to come to Jesus Christ. And for us as Christians, humility should be a daily response we have to God and toward one another. And the question each day we must ask is, how can I follow Christ in humility? How can I put on these clothes of humility and serve one another. When you humble yourself in your relationships, in your marriage, in the church, God gives you grace. There could be someone in here today, maybe a spouse in here, and your marriage is rife with pride. You guys fight all the time. There's selfishness. There's grudges that go years back. Again, you can feel like God has been absent from your marriage for a while. and No wonder. Pride has filled your home. And you need God's grace. And that first starts with you humbling yourself before the Lord. And then humbling yourself before your spouse. 
and saying, I, I've, I've wronged you and I need God's grace. I imagine there are some young people in here and your heart has been hardened to your parents and to God. Your heart might be full of pride. So you argue and you fight and you're selfish and you lie and you talk back. And you feel, you feel opposed by God and by other people. And again, no wonder your heart is full of pride. And life is miserable for you. And it should be because life lived for you is miserable. And you need grace. And that can only happen when you humble yourself before God. All of us can think of areas of our life where we have a tendency to harden our heart in pride. And so I encourage all of us, maybe maybe after the service, maybe sometime later today, to go alone with the Lord and humble yourself before the Lord and then go before that person and humble yourself before them. And as a church, we need God's grace. How easy is it for that little neutron of pride to slip into the hearts of those within the church to cause us to divide from each other and to explode and to spiritually to spiritually destroy the work that God is doing here. May God, may God give us grace. And so first, may we have humble hearts before him. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the music team to come on up. And Isabel, if you want to go ahead and when you come up, just play the piano for us quietly in the background. A service like this is a time for Christ to call you to follow him. And it could be that you're a person maybe listening online or in here and you've just been wrestling with that. You've been resisting, submitting, and humbling your heart before Christ. You're not a believer. I call you. Christ calls you to come to him today. Come to Christ. Like the, your heart of pride, your life is going to be miserable if it's lived for yourself. And for us, church, boy, we need a lot of humility, don't we? So we need a lot of grace from God. Let me encourage you right now. Would you bow your heart before the Lord and humble yourself before the Lord in prayer? We need your grace. Some in here that are without Christ, they need the grace that saves. For by grace, we are saved through faith. So I pray, Lord, they'll turn to you. In our church, we need an ongoing, daily humbling before you. Oh, Lord, we confess there's many times in our days, in our hearts, that we exalt ourselves above you and above each other. And Lord, you oppose us, but yet you want to give us grace. And so Lord, I pray for our church. God, humble us before you. 
do what it takes in our life so that we can have humble hearts before Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.